Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidinol, founder of leading Australian podcast agency and 2021 Australian podcast awards finalists, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way, pursue your passion, and why there's really nothing better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. As entrepreneurs, and especially female founders, the thought of hearing a no in response to sharing your idea, showing someone a pitch, or finding a mentor can be terrifying. But what if we reframed it? That's what this week's guest, Stephanie Wisner, did when she co-founded biotech startup Centervax. Now, Centervax is developing new medicines to treat COVID-19, MRSA, flu, and other infectious diseases. But how did she get there? In today's episode, Stephanie discusses the upside of getting told no, how to stay in it once you've made a big decision, and why the cost of failure isn't as big as it seems. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, firstly, welcome. And please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us on our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado... Welcome, Stephanie. Stephanie, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is a great podcast and I'm very honored to have been asked. Oh, So appreciate that. You know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the incredible work you're doing in healthcare tech, I knew I had to have you come in the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. That's so sweet of you. Thank you. And back at you. It's awesome to see, you know, woman-led podcasts. I think that's great. Amazing. 
Great. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I have a background in science, so I consider myself to be a scientist, but I'm also um, an entrepreneur and business person and author. So um, kind of all of those things together, it's a unique combination. I can't say that I ever saw that coming in the past, but um, I had the opportunity to co-found Centivax along with Jacob Glanville and several other co-founders back at the beginning of 2020. Um, We target rapidly mutating pathogens by creating universal, quote unquote, broad spectrum vaccine technology, as well as technology that's able to target rapidly mutating bacteria. So think of drug resistant bacteria. And before that, I had started my own consulting business, which is still up and running, BioVenture Advising LLC. And I recently wrote a book as well. So that, you know, um, is part of that company. And I also, you know, love just being involved in biotech entrepreneurship and getting to meet people and getting to meet other entrepreneurs. Oh, so cool, Steph. I feel like you're just like a jack of all <laughs> trades and you're just doing it all. You're and, so oh, sweet. It's so awesome. And I can't wait to dive deeper into both of your businesses and, and even your book. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? That's a great question. I think I should start asking that question. So I grew up in the Midwest. I consider myself a very deep Midwesterner, which sometimes surprises people because I lived on the East Coast for 10 years and I'm only in my 20s. So it's roughly half and half of my life on on each. I I guess you can't call it a coast. I live in Chicago, so we kind of pretend it's a coast, but it's not. Um, But I'm originally from Michigan. My grandparents were... Um, were from farm families. My grandfather put himself through college by driving trucks to the Midwest. So very much that sort of background. Um, grew up going out to the country, going out to Detroit a lot, which is where my dad is from. My mother is from Korea. So definitely have that cultural background as well. And then I grew up on the East Coast. So I lived in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Cornell, so upstate New York. Um, so kind of got to see a lot of different places on the East Coast, which I'm sure has shaped me a bit. I guess to answer your original question, I think that I've been told I have kind of the East Coast grittiness about me where I can be tough or you know, standoffish if I need to be. But I also definitely have the Midwest sense of, I hope to kind of stay connected to just the average American down to earth. And I very much value a good deal. I'm one of those people that if you come up to me and compliment my coat, I'm probably going to tell you that I got it on sale and be very proud about that. So in entrepreneurship and starting my businesses, especially BioVenture Advising, there are a lot of things about it, which some people kind of looked at me like I was crazy, but I was pretty proud of. So for example, when I was first getting the business off the ground, I was also in business school and I was pretty determined not to take student debt. And that was just kind of something that I wanted to do. It's not, you know, a bad thing to take student debt. I just didn't want to. So I actually 
signed up for a one bedroom apartment by myself, signed a lease by myself. And then I recruited someone to live in the bedroom part of it and pay 70% of the rent. And then I lived in the living room and I paid like 30% of the rent. So my friends like to make fun of me for because I lived in this apartment for about three years and they called it my living room bedroom. And I made it work. I ran ran the company out of that bedroom, that living room bedroom. And I had a twin size bed. And <laughs> it was not the most glamorous thing by any means, but I would attribute that very much to my Midwest roots. Like you gotta stay humble, keep myself humble, get a good deal, all those things all together. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I wish I saw a photo of that bedroom living room. <laughs> oh, I have a photo. I'll oh, show you later. Goodness. I've got to see it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I find this also fascinating. You know, what did your mother being from Korea, how did that influence you? I guess, you know, did you ever go back there? Was she quite tied to her roots? You know, what was it like also growing up as kind of a biracial kid in the Midwest and then in the East Coast? You know, how did that affect, I guess, kind of how you saw the world at that time? I think a lot of times people ask me when I say my mom was Korean and, you know, I went to Cornell, I was on the Forbes list and just all these things. They assume she was a tiger mom because that's the stereotype. And they'll ask me, was she a tiger mom? And the answer is no. My mom was someone who was very much involved in her own career, in her own life. And while she very much had high standards for my brother and I, she was pretty hands off, which is actually a little bit less culturally Korean, typically speaking. But I would say the way she influenced me is she just had these incredibly high standards for us, but she was also incredibly supportive. And because she had high standards for us and for herself, it made me have high standards for myself, even though my mom wasn't the one micromanaging me. I also think to your question about being biracial and having multiple cultures, it just gives you appreciation early on that sometimes the conventional way of doing things or the way everyone at large seems to do things, sometimes that's not the best way just because it's normal. So for example, I grew up with a very distinct understanding that, you know, Americans tend to eat a certain type of food. My friends had, you know, pasta and red sauce and they had their like Lunchables and all of that. And I ate like kimchi, which is like pickled cabbage with like red spices and it smells really funky And people thought that was super weird. And honestly, it was for a lunch choice. But (laughs) um, that's just a small example. I became very comfortable with like, okay, well, like white people don't eat that healthy. So I don't really care about, you know, their judgment on on what I'm eating. And obviously, that's a bit a bit tongue in cheek. But I guess it taught me very early on that there are certain values in my mom's culture and certain values in other cultures that might not be seen as conventional, but had value too. And I think it made me very open-minded and probably okay with being different. And I guess on the other side, I actually grew up going to a Korean Presbyterian church. So it was a totally Korean church. And for those of you who can't see me, I don't look very Korean. I look pretty white. Koreans look at me and they think that I'm fully white or I'm Hispanic or something like that. So I stood out like a sore thumb is what I'm saying in this church. And I didn't speak the language. And so, again, I had to be comfortable on the other side, too. I was kind of, you know, one foot out of that culture where I wasn't 
fully one of them, but I also, uh, as you, as you pointed out, I was growing up in the Midwest in the nineties and early two thousands. And at least in the circles I ran in and at that time, um, I was in Ann Arbor, which now has a lot of Koreans and Asians, but at least the schools I was in and where I lived at the time, there were fewer of us. So I, you know, definitely identified as a child as being Korean. Like I'm Korean. I stand out as being Korean. I'm a minority leaned into that different culture. So how can we get better at leaning in to those parts of ourselves that are different and are unique, but perhaps we don't see them as that. We see them as weird, strange, and even more so than that, how do we get comfortable with kind of being different? Mm, that's a really good question. So I'm pretty famous in my group of friends to a fault for being a little too comfortable with being different. They're like, Stephanie, you don't always have to stick out. Like you can be on time sometimes. You can, you know, do what everyone else is doing once in a while. And <laughs> so I'm probably the right person and the wrong person to ask about this. The right person because that's me to a fault. The wrong person because I'm potentially too comfortable in this category. But something I heard someone say once that has always stuck with me is that just because a certain way is the way we have always done things. That doesn't mean that it's the best way. And I think just being willing to have a bigger picture of where you're going and being willing to ask questions like, is this actually the best way? Like, why do we do it like this? So a small example of that in my life is that, you know, I started this company and I was pretty young when I was getting started. So I was like 22, 23. And a lot of people were telling me, go get a PhD, go work at a big corporation, go do X, Y, and Z to get more credentials before you do something like that. And you know what? I want to say like, it's wise to seek counsel and it's wise to, you know, talk to people who have been down the road before you. Sometimes you know in your gut that there's something you should do, even if other people don't see it. But that doesn't mean I didn't look crazy doing all of this in my living room bedroom. So I had in mind a bigger picture, which is that I knew that I had some skill set that was valuable to biotech clients where I could help translate the science into something that the average person or investors could understand a little bit better, that I could help translate into a business model. And so even though I was well aware that I had a lot to learn and a lot of areas of growth, because I could see a bigger picture for the future, it was easier for me to do something less conventional. So to answer your question, I think that if you have big goals and big ideas and you can see a bigger picture, it's a lot easier to find ways to work to that, that, you know, don't look like the way everyone else does things. Um, for those of you at Cornell or for those people who are listening, go to Cornell. I've always thought it was so funny that 50% of the class seems to go into consulting. So I almost felt weird that I wasn't going into consulting or grad school or something like that. And it was actually very hard to feel like I wasn't making a mistake because I was the only one I knew doing something like what I was doing. And especially with a bachelor's in science, I didn't have a business background. I didn't have kind of the typical credentials where I was going to like start a chip company or an app or something like that. That was a little bit, I guess, more typical for a startup business out of college. And so I really had to, number one, like find mentors that did see what I was talking about and give me feedback. Like, no, you're not crazy. This makes sense. It's a, 
it's a calculated risk. And so that's another concept I, I think has been really helpful for me. There's a difference between outright risk and calculated risk. Outright risk is when you just do something stupid and you're taking risks because for the sake of taking risks. And a calculated risk is you're well aware of your fallback positions. You're well aware of the worst case scenario. And sometimes the worst case scenario isn't as bad as what we think. Another thing to just throw in here is that I think sometimes, um, and especially women in general, we're afraid of getting told no so much so that we overestimate the downside of getting told no when the upside of getting told yes is really high. So something that I learned early on too is that sometimes it's okay to take risks and fail because sometimes the cost of failure isn't as big as it feels. Sometimes it's you know as simple as just, okay, this person doesn't want to take an interview with me for my book or okay, this person isn't going to like probably become a client. They don't want to meet with me. That's fine. It costs me almost nothing to get that no, except, you know, I guess a bruise on my ego. But for the, you know, 10%, 5% of people that said yes, it's a huge upside. I have those people in my book. I have those personal relationships, but I would never have gotten those if I hadn't been willing to maybe be told no. And so I think that's something that, you know, I'd love for people to be more aware of. Oh, yes to like everything you just said, Steph. <laughs> I've been nodding along. You guys can't see me, but I've been nodding along. I think I was just reflecting on my own story and my own journey where I also straight out of college took the leap into entrepreneurship and starting my own business. And I love how you literally talked about, you know, half the people in my class were going to go off and be consultants because that was the exact same thing that happened all the way over here in Oz at the university that I was at here at Monash Uni. And, you know, it's just so interesting. I remember feeling completely like I was doing the wrong thing, but at the same Mm. time, my gut was telling me, no, this is right. But Mm. everything external was just, it felt like I was being the black sheep and that, you know, I was just doing something so outlandish. But really looking back, it was just a different path that others don't take, right. you know. I think something that I personally struggled with, and I am sure our peers out there listening, maybe they're dealing with the same thing. You know, maybe they've made a decision to go down a different path that doesn't make sense externally. And to be honest with you, probably won't make sense. And for me, it didn't make sense for a couple of years until it started to actually work out. You know, how do we stay in it once we've made that big decision and not get discouraged when it doesn't go our way? Mm. That's a good question as well. So I forgot to add this to my introduction, but recently, and I think the reason you reached out is recently I was named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list for healthcare, which is really exciting and a huge honor, of course, and a huge surprise as well. Because they don't tell you, you just wake up and there it is. But something that I wasn't expecting from that honor was just the amount of, I guess, credibility that I've gotten from it, which, you know, is awesome. I appreciate it. I just hadn't thought of how people's perception of me would change because I haven't changed anything I'm doing, right? Like I'm doing the same businesses I was doing before. I, you know, already had the book. I already had everything already in place. The only thing that's different is that now I, you know, can say I'm a Forbes 30 under 30, which is great. And I, I can understand from an outside perspective why that would give me 
added credibility. So I'm not, you know, diminishing that at all. But all that to say, sometimes other people's perception of your success is very fickle, and it doesn't actually reflect whether or not you are successful. So that definitely has been true for me, because it was like overnight, people went from thinking I was, you know, kind of crazy, okay, Stephanie, she's doing her like weird whatever she's doing thing, like, okay, hope she doesn't go bankrupt, <laughs> to I got the Forbes honor and those same people, I could just see the shift in how they perceived me. And I don't, you know, I don't take it personally, because I think not everyone is built for entrepreneurship and or not everyone necessarily needs to see or understand for what you're doing to be the right path. Um, and there's probably lots of people out there that I think are crazy that are going to go succeed. So it's, you know, it goes both ways. But the point is just, if if you put too much weight into how people see you, that's a very fickle measure of how you're doing and may or may not actually correlate to success. Because our company was doing no better the day before I got the Forbes Award than it was doing the day after I got the Forbes Award. So. All that to say, I think there's, you know, a role for receiving feedback and for measuring where you are in relation to a big view of success. For example, if our company starts failing and a lot of the drugs fail, I shouldn't just put blinders on and keep going. It's probably then time to reevaluate things and pivot maybe figure out what I'm going to do next, that's different. So I'm not saying like, put your blinders on and don't think about anything else. But it's also really important to have an internal metric of what it means to succeed. So for example, for me, I knew that I wasn't going to keep the consulting business going if I wasn't going to get a certain number of clients. I was like, all right, I give myself X number of months to make X number of dollars and or sign X number of clients for the future. And if I don't do that, then I'm going to go get a conventional job. And I made it, right? So that was one measure of success in that in that situation. And with Centivax, there's multiple measures of success. Right now, we're raising our Series A. So if we can do that successfully, you know, that's one milestone. And maybe the next milestone is getting our first drug into clinical trials. So I think there's very tangible, logical ways for you to keep yourself going when you see traction. And there's also ways to kind of scale things. So for example, my consulting business was very much a side hustle at first. And then as it became more and more, I guess, I got more and more clients, I was able to focus increasingly on that business. And it became kind of its own version of success. Whereas before you know, it was working, it was moving along, but how I was able to view it changed because it became more, more successful and got more attraction. So all that to say, I think it's important to have internal measures of success so that even when people aren't validating you, you know that you are moving towards something, you're moving towards a target that other people may or may not be able to see. And sometimes they'll be able to see it. Like in the case of the Forbes situation, people were like, okay, I guess your company's legit if Forbes is recognizing you. But it didn't actually change whether or not my company was legit that people validated me. I knew it was legit because of data, because of partnerships that we'd done, because of you know, various grants that we've won. So just having those things that you know you can hold on to, I think are really important to keep you going in the entrepreneurial journey. I don't know if you can relate mm, to that at all. Mm, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I want to talk a bit about your confidence and certainty. You know, it's so cool to see, Steph. I just feel this energy from you. And I'm sure our peers out there listening can feel the energy through the speakers or <laughs> the AirPods or however you guys are listening in. But just your level of certainty and confidence and almost like backing of yourself. You know, for you, where did that come from? How did you cultivate that? And for our peers out there listening and also for myself, how can we get better at doing that for ourselves and get okay with what we're doing? Well, I think a really big thing is being self-aware. And I know that sounds like a very general answer. So let me be a bit more specific. It's important to be self-aware, not just in the way people think of when they think of self-aware, but it's also important to have a really keen understanding of your weaknesses and in a way that's not defensive. Mm-hmm. And in turn, a really solid understanding of what you're good at and in a way that's not overly cocky. So here's what I mean by that. I, you know, have this science background that I got from Cornell and I also have an MBA, but I also am well aware that I'm young and relatively inexperienced for an industry that has veterans that have been in it for, you know, 30 years. So something that's been really valuable and helpful for building my confidence is working with mentors and people that are older than me because I'm making calls in the company that are, you know, really important or I'm making strategy recommendations that are really important. And so sometimes my confidence doesn't come from me. Sometimes it comes from sanity checking myself with people who have seen this a thousand times. So what I mean by that is I'm self-aware enough to know when I'm out of my depth. And then I can go solicit the sources I need, whether that's mentors, people older than me, researching online, reading books. I can find the data I need to then be confident. And then there's things that I legitimately have confidence in. For example, I know that I am a fairly good writer and communicator. And so I do have confidence in that that isn't necessarily reliant upon external validation. And I think that that is really important as well to just know what you're good at, to solicit that feedback from people. I've had multiple people tell me I'm a good communicator. That's how I I know that. But also it's a perspective of continuing to grow. So for example, I will watch recordings of myself and you know, pick myself apart about what can I do better and just seek to improve. And I think another thing that has helped me with confidence, ironically, is being really open to soliciting negative feedback. Because when people know that you take negative feedback well, and you don't get defensive, they're more willing to just voluntarily give you negative feedback. And they're more honest about positive feedback. So when people tell me I'm good at something or that, you know, I did a good job at XYZ, I know that those same people would tell me if I absolutely screwed up at that. So being able to hear both sides of that feedback actually makes you more confident on the bigger stuff, in my opinion. I also think just practice, practice, practice at certain things that you know you need to grow in. So for example, you know, I do have the science bachelor's degree, but I work with pretty much all PhDs, or if they're not PhDs, they have 10, 15 years of experience in the industry. And it's not constructive for me to pretend like I know as much as they do because I'm insecure. That just doesn't work. The better thing to do is to admit what I do and don't know, 
and to, you know, dig in in a kind of systematic way to improving my science knowledge. So for example, I work with one of my colleagues who's been very kind to offer his time and we read science papers together and he's in his seventies and he teaches me and I learn from him. And so then when I go into a meeting, I'm able to say, okay, you know, I don't know this as much, but I am confident about this because I just went over it. But also being willing to like defer to someone when you need to defer to someone. That's a very long-winded way of saying, I think ironically, a lot of self-confidence is rooted in having a very keen self-awareness of what you are good and what you're bad at, and also being able to grow in both of those areas and get feedback and affirmation and or negative feedback from people in all of those areas. Because the more self-aware you are, the more you're able to be confident in the areas that you deserve to be confident in. So well said. So well said. I want to dive a bit deeper now into the businesses and the early challenges. Oh my goodness. You know, you. I think it was in 2017 that you started your consulting business, BioVenture Advising. And then as you mentioned, 2020 was when you got involved with Centervax and started that with your co-founders. You know, if you take us back to, you know, living in your living room couch, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, bedroom and whatnot in 2017 and, you know, just having graduated, just trying to find your feet, you know, what were some of those early challenges to get your business off the ground? And what were some of those early failures that you experienced? I'd say some of my early challenges were just being able to figure out where I specifically could offer value and also how to, I guess, to your prior question, how to have confidence in myself because I was, you know, 22, 23, just getting started. And the way I got started actually is I showed up to a pitch event that was happening in downtown Ann Arbor. And I saw this medical startup company that was solving this really interesting problem in the cancer space. And I, you know, waited till everyone left and I approached them afterwards and I introduced myself and was like, Hey, um, do you need any help? Like, I think I could work for you for free. Like I want to learn some stuff from you and I think I could be helpful to you. I have a science background, X, Y, Z. And he was like, sure, let's talk. And then he ended up hiring me at an hourly rate of like minimum wage. And that was my first client. So I guess being willing to start somewhere, I was obviously not going to very easily be able to support myself on that. I also was doing a lot more learning on the job than I was necessarily offering value right out of the gate. So being willing to kind of be in that position. I'd also say that in the first few years of the business, I definitely constantly felt out of my depth. There were constantly things I was doing that I just didn't know. So I learned a lot of the business side at first before my MBA by working with companies. And there were business people I, were, I was working with who taught me a lot about finance and financing clinical trials and drug development and all the things that I use every day in my job now. But I felt totally out of my depth and I had to really stretch and learn all that stuff. So there was a lot of work I was doing on the side to hustle and get caught up with what I knew. Um, so I was taking 
obviously my business school classes, but I was also doing a lot of YouTube and book reading and studying online. I watched hours of videos on Investopedia, which is a finance channel for people who don't know anything about finance, which was me. So just being willing to put that work in. And then, you know, a few years later, I actually have a lot of knowledge and experience about the industry, even though I haven't been in it that long, because I had so many clients, I spent so many hours learning various things. But I'm not going to lie, it was very uncomfortable. And I had deep imposter syndrome for many, the first couple of years getting into it. And I think sometimes you have imposter syndrome because it's a syndrome. And sometimes you have imposter syndrome because you actually don't know something. And it's important to know the difference because when you actually don't know something, like that's okay. As long as, you know, your employer or whoever knows that you don't know it, which mine did. Um, I wasn't being asked to do specific things on the business. I was supposed to do the science stuff, but I wanted to grow. So I put a lot of time into learning the business side. So you know, I, in that case, was an imposter to some degree because I legitimately didn't know the business side very well at first. And I had to really focus on, on getting the most out of my business school classes, as well as, you know, on learning on the side. I so resonate with so much of what you're saying. I'm sure our peers out there listening who are on the journey can resonate as well. I think it's those early days, you're just plodding through. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what you're doing and you really are learning on the job. And I think it can be quite daunting, to be honest. And it seems like for you, it was just, you know, dealing with that imposter syndrome, appreciating it, knowing that, you know what, it it is what it is. And I'm just going to have to hustle and learn it on the go, which I think I personally can resonate with. I mean, I feel like I still hustle on the side (laughs) to learn things every day. I'm like, I, there's still so much amazing stuff. Look, oh my goodness, we could talk for days and I'm so into this, but I am mindful of your time. So I've got a couple of final questions for you. And the first one is what has been your greatest failure and win to date? Okay, I'll start with win because that's a little bit easier for me to think of at the top of my head. Um, so I would say my biggest win to date, even though it has yet to go live, I think it'll be live by the time this podcast airs, but my book, Building Backwards to Biotech, which I wrote over the last three years, and then unexpectedly, it's taken about six months to get the, the published version on Amazon. That should be available by the time this goes live. And it's just about biotech entrepreneurship and kind of tells about my path and hopefully helps other people get into it a little bit easier than me because it was very hard to figure out at the time. But I would say that was probably one of my biggest accomplishments to date because it took me, it was just such a difficult project. I started it when I was 23 as part of the business. And the purpose was because as I was getting into biotech entrepreneurship, I was seeing that there just wasn't something out there that married you know, what are startups and also what is drug development and biotech and put those two things together. You could find a book on each separately, but you couldn't find one with those things together. And for someone like me who was young and trying to get into the industry, that would have really helped. And so I wrote the book that I wanted at the time to help other people who now want to get into the industry, because I think it's so important that we invite new entrepreneurs into biotech in particular so that we can have, you know, the next generation of medicines and medical innovators um, have access to become entrepreneurs. So that's kind of the vision there, but it 
was such a difficult project because I was actually learning as I was writing the book. So as I wrote the chapter on clinical trials, I was learning about clinical trials. As I wrote the chapter on financing, I was learning financing. And through doing the book, I reached out to 50 people probably, if not more, for interviews and probably actually probably more like 100. And I ended up having 30 something in the book, I think. So that's like one third got back to me and said yes. So two thirds said no, or two thirds rejected me. And so I had to have pretty thick skin. Oh, and then the other thing was getting the final interviews into the book. You know, I'm talking to sometimes very famous people, and I'm showing them their interviews. And I had one person tell me like, no, So my failure story is that while I was writing the book, I had someone who was pretty famous. He just won a really uh, prestigious prize in chemistry, which kind of is seen as the precursor to the Nobel Prize, which is obviously the biggest prize in science. So he's really famous. I was so excited to have him in the book. And when I first did his chapter write-up, I it just didn't occur to me to add certain nuance, I think, because, you know, as I was trying to create something simple for people to understand, which I think it still is, but in the process, I accidentally lost some critical nuance to the story. So not just his interview, but also when I was talking about some of the differences in the industry. And when I sent it to him, he got back to me and he was like, this isn't like, this isn't accurate. Like you need to fix this. And hearing that two weeks before the book was set to like go live. And then also from him in particular, who's this really well-known guy and I really wanted him to like it felt very crushing. I was pretty upset at the time, but there's kind of two ways you can deal with failure. One of them is to, you know, blame the other person, not really analyze yourself and not really be willing to change or to kind of see how you can grow from the experience. And again, listen to people that are older and wiser than you, because he was looking out for me. He was like, look, Stephanie, like he wasn't unkind about it, but he was just very direct. Like, look, this isn't, this isn't good you need to change this. This this is not good. And so hearing that from him, of course, was crushing, but just being able to hear the feedback and be grateful for the fact that he was willing to tell me that, that was really helpful. Like, I'm so glad he told me that because it actually changed the way I wrote the book because then I went back through and redid a lot of things. And that ended up making the book so much better. And so even though the book is coming out now, I think like seven months later than it was initially going to, although that whole seven months wasn't for the the same reason. I'm super glad that I had that experience because it made the book better. I was able to, you know, take that feedback in stride and realize like, oh, yeah, sometimes I, I don't provide enough nuance in what I'm saying because I'm trying to make it too simple. And so how can I add the critical nuance while also making it something people can comprehend. And so I think now the book is just so much more powerful because of that feedback. But that was definitely a really crushing moment for me after finishing the book and getting that piece of feedback. I can imagine you're like, I've done this marathon for three years and and now it continues. Exactly. Oh, thanks so much for sharing that with us, Steph. Oh my goodness. Look, over the last four and a half years in business, Steph, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received a lot of recognition for your work. As you mentioned, you were recently featured on the Forbes 
30 under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you'd give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? So I think the first one is kind of a theme that I've said before, which is sometimes people aren't going to see the problem that you see that you are looking to solve with your business. Sometimes people aren't going to have the vision for what you what you have or what you see. Sometimes that means that's because you're wrong, but sometimes that means that they just don't see it and that's okay. So I guess what I'm saying is it's okay to venture out on your own path and it's okay to not do what everyone else is doing. And I think what I've learned is actually, if you think about the greatest thinkers and entrepreneurs and world changers, to use a couple probably tired examples, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, whatever guy invented Uber, when all those people started out, they looked crazy because they were doing something totally different than what anyone else ever thought was normal. Like ride sharing is a pretty crazy thing. If you think about it, we were like getting into a car with a stranger and they're driving us to a destination, but now it's normal. So we don't think about it. But at the time that was like a crazy idea. And the guy who proposed it was crazy. And what I'm saying about that is like, you kind of have to be crazy to make a big difference. Because by definition, in order to make a big difference, you're doing something that's never been done before. And so if you expect that to look like a path that everyone else has already done, then you know that's fine, but you're probably not going to have as big of an impact. So I think that's something that I wish I understood a little bit better at first is that actually, if you do wanna have a big impact, it actually is important to intentionally not do things the way other people do them. That doesn't necessarily mean in every single facet, but I think broadly speaking, that's important. The second thing is, I think there's huge value to building things yourself. It's great to work for big companies where you learn so much there. And I've seen like my brother has worked for Google ever since he graduated college. He's doing great. He loves it there. And he's learned so much. But I also know that, at least for me, things like writing my book, creating that myself for you, creating this podcast, things that you create and you own and you can point to and say, that's mine. Like I made that. There's something special about that, that you just don't get in a you know, in a corporate environment, typically, obviously, there's like inventorship and everything in a company. But I've just found that to be so rewarding and valuable. And even as like a side thing, aside from Centivax right now, just doing the book stuff, it's just been incredibly cool to see how I can impact other people through the things that I create. And I think a lot of people have things to offer and they just don't do it because either they underestimate the impact, they underestimate the value even to themselves of creating it. Or three, it just feels like a weird thing to do because most people just do their nine to five jobs. And so I would encourage people to just start somewhere with creating something. It doesn't have to be a business. It doesn't have to be a podcast. It could be anything. I had a friend out of college create this nonprofit. It turned into a nonprofit, but it started out as just he thought there should be more positivity. This is pre-COVID. So he would like write positive notes and leave them on people's windshields. And that turned into a whole movement called car window poetry, 
where you can buy cards and people like put them on people's windows and it makes people's days to like find find these cards. And so he created this. He's like been on the news about it. And now it's a nonprofit. It's a whole thing. And, you know, he just did that on the side while he was doing his nine to five. And so I think it's hard to quantify what sort of impact little things like that have. And then last but not least, number three, I think the last thing I wish I knew and I've touched on again and again is find someone older and wiser than you and recruit them to be your mentor. And I don't just mean have yearly coffee and talk about your successes. I mean, have someone you can call when you're in the middle of a work crisis and you're like, here's the situation. Here's what happened. Did I screw up? Like, tell me what I messed up here and have someone who can, you know, look you in the eye and be like, yes, you did not handle that well. And here's, you know, here's what I would do now, or here's what I would have done next time. Having those people in my life has been immensely valuable because I am learning and getting instant feedback on the spot of like, not just what I've done well. I don't really need people to affirm me that I've I've done well. Mostly I need people to tell me how to handle things or handle specific things or what I'm missing or what I'm overlooking or what I'm doing wrong and my blind spots and myself and having someone who's able to not just meet with you once a year, but give you that live feedback. I think that's made a huge difference for me. Again, such valuable advice. And I've been nodding along. Oh, Steph, what a chat. Before I ask you the final question, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing for showing us, in particular us, biracial women and women in general and young, ambitious millennials, that if we have that vision, that goal and that dream, even if it makes us sound so silly and look so stupid, you know, if we feel it's right within our hearts and within ourselves, we should chase it and go after it. And for that, we really appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm honored to be able to talk about that. Amazing. So look, the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I'd imagine most people probably answer this by saying you enjoy your work, you can get out of bed every day, and it's, you know, keeps you going. And I totally agree with that. I think that's absolutely correct. I also think it goes beyond that, though. I think there's something about doing something you're passionate about, but also something that you know matters in the big grand scheme of the world. And because I think it goes beyond just, you know, feeling good about what you're doing day to day. It's about also leaving a lasting impact somewhere. And for me, my domain that I'm really excited and passionate about is medical innovation, bioentrepreneurship, making sure people have new medicines for currently untreated diseases. I really care about that. And people are going to forget about me. I'm interesting and I'm excited right now on the Forbes list. But like next year, there's going to be more Forbes people and the year after and probably like into infinity. And people aren't going to remember me in 10 years or 20 years. And that's kind of a scary thought for most people. But I think when you're doing something you're passionate about, it's not just that you're getting up out of bed every day. It's also that hopefully you're doing something that'll last beyond you and make an impact beyond you, even if you yourself aren't recognized or around to see it. And I think that that is 
the biggest value of doing something you're passionate about is by definition, if you're passionate about it, then it probably matters and has lasting impact. I love it. (laughs) Stephanie. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. We've had an absolute blast. Where can we learn more about you and both of your businesses and your book? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for asking that. (laughs) So I have a website um, that will hopefully be up by the time this podcast is done. But my website is bioventureadvising.com and you can join my mailing list where I'll keep you posted on things. But I also just love hearing from people. My contact information is there. So if you want to shoot me an email, connect with me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, at S.A. Wisner. Um, I love to hear from people. And my book is on Amazon, Building Backwards to Biotech, The Power of Entrepreneurship to Bring Cutting-Edge Science to Market. You can find it on Amazon and anywhere where they sell books. So would love for you to read it and let me know what you think. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again, Steph. It's been so awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm honored to have been asked. Of course. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.